Amen. It's so good to be with you this evening. Um, I must say I had a bit of a moment just then when we were singing and I, I heard all these voices behind me. I'm like, what's happened in Porch? Like, it's, it's really wonderful uh, to see so many people here, so many that I don't even recognize. And it's really good to, I don't think I've been here since you've constituted as a church in March. So congratulations and and we pray that the Lord would do that and do that even more. This has been our prayer at Heritage in Johannesburg to, to see you become your own church, to be independent, to call a pastor. And it is a, a prayer that we'll pray towards and work towards uh, so that, you can, have a, uh, that you, can, you can have an impact in this city, this town. It's, it's not a city really, is it? It's a, it's a town, but still it's got people here that need the gospel. Turn with me in your, in your Bibles to... Acts chapter, Acts chapter 4, and, uh, and in Johannesburg we've been going through the book of Acts, but I, I did want to just uh, give you a taste of just one part of Acts that we've, we saw a number of weeks back um, that I thought might be useful to you. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22 this evening. And as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or name, or by, or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today, Concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who has become a cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, and for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all, in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, 
you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is God's word. The book of Acts uh, is written by Luke, uh, who wrote also the Gospel of Luke, as the second part of uh, a a two-part series, as it were. Uh, There's arguments about whether it's one work or not, but it's clear that even if it is one work, it's separated into two. The first part is the Gospel according to Luke, where he traces the life of Jesus Christ up until his death and resurrection. And then the book of Acts now wants to trace the works of Jesus Christ throughout now, through his apostles, by the Holy Spirit, after he has ascended. And in writing the preface to the Gospel of Luke, which really is the preface to both books, both Luke and Acts, Luke tells us why he is writing this. He's writing it to a man named Theophilus, and he says to Theophilus, I'm writing this, an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know for, for a certainty the things that you have been taught. So if you want to understand why the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written, they were written for the particular purpose that we might know for a fact, that we might have confidence, we might have, if you were to say, something that's written with journalistic integrity for us, properly or orderly organized, so that we might know and have confidence in the faith in Jesus Christ that we have. And so what has happened so far in the, in the, in the book of Acts? In the book of Acts, the Lord, Je- the Lord Jesus in, in Acts chapter 1 uh, gathers his small group of 120 and tells them that he's going to give them the Holy Spirit and this Holy Spirit is going to enable them to go forward to be witnessed throughout the whole world. He says that famous line to him, Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But you, so they must wait in Jerusalem for this gift to come, and then they will be empowered, and then they will begin their ministry. Just like the, Holy, the Lord Jesus himself, before he began his ministry, he, the Holy Spirit had to come down on him first. It's the same thing. And so now when that happens in chapter 2, this group of 120, they're sitting in, a, in an upper room, and the Holy Spirit falls down on them, and then they come out speaking in different languages, proclaiming the wonders of God to the watching nations. And of course, they had been in, in Jerusalem at that time. It was a time of Pentecost, so there were Jews from all over the Roman world at the time. And then this becomes the first sign that God does, showing that he is with this group of people, and that now this particular sign communicates that now the gospel is to go to our, throughout all the nations. And the, all the men are gathered there in Israel, and the people come around to, to hear all these people diff, speaking in different languages. And they come and they ask, what, are you guys drunk? What's going on? Why is everybody able to understand you in their own language? And then Peter says, no, we're not drunk. Uh, what has happened now, you guys killed the Messiah. You guys are guilty of killing your Messiah that God had brought to you. But now... He has brought times of refreshing. Now he's offering forgiveness to you if only you would believe in him and, 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 and run away to him and hide in him. This Christ that you killed is the Messiah that God has installed in the world. And so they ask, okay, so what must we do? What, what can we do to avoid God's wrath? And Peter tells them, 
Repent and believe, be baptized, all of you, uh, so that you might have this forgiveness of sins. 3,000 people are saved at once, and then a few days later, Peter and John are, are walking by, going to the temple, and they, here's a lame man, and the lame man is begging for them, and then Peter and John tell him, we don't have much, but what we have, we'll give to you. Stand up in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And the man stands up, and more people are saved. And then people gather, how did this happen? And Peter repeats the same message, effectively, that he preached before. And more people are saved through Peter's preaching. And now we come to chapter 4. Uh, up until this point in the book of Acts, if you've been reading it, you've just been seeing wonder after wonder. The Lord Jesus risen again, ascended, giving commission, and then the Holy Spirit coming, and the church coming in from all over the place, from all over the Roman world, coming in together. It's a, it's a little taste of heaven. And we're seeing these miracles, people speaking in different languages, seeing this lame man walk, which announces uh, the, the, the age to come where there will be no more lameness and no more sickness. It's been a wonderful thing. But now in chapter 4, uh, Luke brings us down to earth because now he introduces opposition. Uh, the, the first thing uh, that Luke brings to our attention here is that the apostles were arrested for preaching that Christ offers resurrection from the dead. Did you see that in verse 1? As they were speaking, the Sadducees came annoyed because, the people were, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so then they are gathered up and they are arrested, both Peter and John. The Sadducees were a religious and political group that, opposed, that had opposed Jesus as well near the end of his ministry. They come here alongside some of the priests and the captain of the temple police. Uh, what you must know, and I'm sure a lot of you do know already, that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection and held that once people are dead, that is it, uh, they're gone. Uh, but the, that the apostles preach that just like Jesus died and came alive again and lived and ate, so will all those who believe in him. And Luke tells us here that this annoys, it vexes, it annoys the Sadducees, it's like when somebody keeps touching their nose and they keep touching their nose while they're talking to you. It's annoying. Like, can you stop that? It's a bit more than that, of course, but you get the point. It's annoying. Um, and the crime here that Luke wants us to know very clearly, the crime that they've committed is that they've preached in Jesus Christ the resurrection. Luke tells us this to show that they are not imprisoned for actual wrongdoing but rather for a disagreeable theology. He makes that very clear. Luke is concerned for us to know that the apostles were not people who caused chaos for chaos' sake, but rather they were being imprisoned exclusively for preaching the gospel. This is extremely important. You see, when this book is written, the book of Acts, it's written to Theophilus, and we're told at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28, that this particular religion of Christianity was everywhere being spoken against. It's one of the last words you hear in the book of Acts. So by the time this book comes to Theophilus, Christianity is everywhere being spoken against. And Luke wants to make it very clear that even though a lot of people are speaking against Christianity, the real reason they're speaking against Christianity is because of the gospel. 
Even though, yes, the, the, the leaders of the Christian religion have been arrested time and time again. The only reason that they were arrested was because they preached the gospel, the resurrection to life. They were not being imprisoned for being cantankerous. They were not being imprisoned for speed for breaking speed limits, however you feel about speed limits. They were not being imprisoned for breaking building codes, environmental laws, go on with the list. They're not imprisoned for tax evasion or anything of the source. They were not imprisoned for being unhelpful or problematic citizens. The only reason they were imprisoned is because they preached the unadulterated, unmultiplied, subtractor or added to gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a very extremely important for us. Though that if we are to be arrested for Christ's sake, we must make sure that we are being arrested for the gospel, not for our own personal opinions. That if we are to be arrested, let them arrest us because we will not move, we will not shake on the purity of the message of the gospel, not because we are being cantankerous. Are you with me? The second thing that Luke tells us is that while Peter and John were imprisoned, people were saved at the message. Do you see that in verse 4? Look at verse 4 with me. But many of those who heard the word that Peter had preached believed, and the number of the men, and this is literally just the men, came to about 5,000, which means that the group could be way more. While the apostles were being arrested, this had no effect on the effectiveness of their witness. The Lord continued to save, and the number of the church now reached 5,000, if not more. Now, I want you to notice something. This is only four chapters into the gospel, into the, to the book of Acts, and this is the third time that Luke is telling us about numbers. In fact, it's the fourth time. He told us at first that he told us in chapter two, he told us at, at the beginning that there were 120 people. And then he told us that there were 3,000 people added the first time Peter preached. And then he told us at the end of chapter 2 that day by day the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. You see, you can see that if you, if you read, you see in chapter 1 and chapter 3, sorry, in chapter 2. And now, here in chapter 4, he's telling us that the group is growing, the group is now 5,000 and again, that's just counting the men. That group is much bigger. Why? You have to ask yourself, why? Why is Luke so concerned in pausing the flow of his narrative to tell us about how big the group is growing? You see, if you actually read this, if you read this particular chapter here, you can actually easily jump from verse 3 into verse 5. You don't really need verse 4. Verse 4 feels like an, feels like an intrusion. He just, he just threw it in there, then he continued with the story. He didn't need to write verse 4. Why did he write that sentence? Why, is he so, why does he want to tell us so much about numbers? I submit to you that Luke is in awe of the wonderful working of God to save sinners. Luke wants us to know how the church grew. He wants us to know the depth of God's mercy, adding thousands to the kingdom. You see, if there's anything that Luke is interested in, if you understand about how Luke thinks throughout writing both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, is this. His main interest is promise and fulfillment. What was promised 
Here it's fulfilled in Jesus. It was promised, now it's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was supposed that the Messiah was to be from the tribe of David. Boom! Jesus from the tribe of David. The, the, the Messiah... The Messiah was supposed to uh, die uh, for, the, for the sake of his people. Boom! Jesus Christ dies for the sake of his people. The Messiah was supposed to die and then rise again. Luke chapter 24. Boom! Jesus Christ dies and rises again. And throughout Luke's writing, he wants to tell you promise, fulfillment, promise and fulfillment. In here, he wants you to see that the promise to Abraham is coming to fruition. Do you remember what, what Abraham told what God told Abraham? He told him, look to the stars and number them. If you're able to number them, I will give you as many descendants as they are. In other words, to say, you can't number them, and that's how many descendants I'll give you. An innumerable number of people. The reason that Luke is so interested to tell us that day by day people are being saved, 3,000 people are saved, now the number is 5,000 is because he wants us to see that this really is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. That this really is the time when God is fulfilling what he was to do. And so, in that, this is why we also must care about numbers as well. As with everything, there are always extremes. Hear me, church. There, is all, there are always extremes. There is a temptation for some to make everything about numbers, which, could, which can lead to pragmatism and weakening of the message. So it's no longer about God actually blessing the nations and giving people true life. It ends up being about that particular church and its size. And that's a distortion that we here at Poch must make sure we do not fall into. But there is also the temptation on the other hand, and that is a temptation to not care about numbers at all. There is a pride in thinking that you are so faithful that you stand alone. But the church must be, but as a church, we must be uncomfortable with not seeing God save people among us. We must be uncomfortable. We, are, we must ask questions. Why is it that God is not saving people among us if, if we see it for a long time, people aren't being saved? Peter in 1 Peter tells us that the reason Christ is taking so long in returning is so that the full number of his people must come in. In many senses, the reason that you here exist in Potchefstroom is to see the full number of God's people from here come in and then Christ returns. You are here to be witnesses to him, to proclaim his message, to stand on his gospel, to be faithful to him until either you go to him or he comes down. But while you're here, you need to be preaching the gospel and expecting people to turn from their sins and come to Christ. While we have opportunity, we must seek to see people saved. There is a deadness in being satisfied in not seeing people saved, not seeing people's lives transformed, not seeing someone move from death to life, from darkness to light, from, have, from having, as Ephesians 2 says, no God in the world to having the God of the universe. There is a, there is a deadness there that we must fight against. We must be people who are seeking to see this, to see the promises fulfilled. So in many senses, let me tell you this, that 
Today is a time to celebrate. As Olga becomes a member in this church, it is a time to celebrate. Because as a person is being added and more people are added, these are not just numbers. These are people. These are actual stories. You hear Luke here saying 5,000, 3,000. You realize that each of those were people who were in deadness before and now have come to life. Do you realize that all of these people mentioned, 5,000, 3,000, all of those people had stories, lived in a life of darkness, having no hope, but now God has rescued them. Even here, I'm sure if we were to sit down and be enthralled by Olga's testimony, as she tells us, we would be glad to hear of the grace of the Lord in her life. Each story is precious in heaven. And so we must seek to see more stories like this. See, we must exist. We do exist to see more people come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this very clearly. We are witnesses of the mercies of God and we are heralds of, the mess, of that message, the message of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. We exist to see people come to Christ. I want you to notice what I did not say. Okay? I did not say we exist only to see people saved. Okay, that's an important distinction. We don't exist only to see people saved. There's many reasons why we exist worship God, to be faithful to Him, to make much of Him. But one of the reasons why we exist is to see people, to, is to see people saved. Part of why we're, while we're still here and Jesus has not returned is so that men and women would be saved and our affections must be warmed by fruits of the gospel in our midst. Well then, let's continue on here. The next day, they are standing before the rulers of the people, and they are questioned. Look at verse 5. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So, Peter and John have been held overnight in prison, and when they get to the trial before the rulers and elders of Israel, they are asked by what power or on whose name, whose authority did they heal this man? See, this is primarily a question of authority. We, as the rulers of Israel, did not give you this right to do this. So who did? We did not give you the right to preach of this resurrection. We did not give you the right to perform miracles. Who is it that gave you this right, that you are so bold to do this? In Luke chapter 20 and verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes asked the Lord Jesus exactly the same question after he had whipped people who were buying and selling in the temple. And he, 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 he whipped them, he turned over the tables, you know the story. And then the scribes come to him, by whose authority are you doing this? But you see, it's not just a question of authority, it's also a question of power. How were you able to make this man walk? By what power did you tap into to be able to make this man walk? You see, they are wondering about whether or not these men were using magic to heal this man, which would be illegal in Israel to do. 
It's not legal in Israel to perform magic, and there was a lot of magic being performed. And so that's why they're asking, by what power? They're accusing them of witchcraft. So Peter responds by reiterating the same message he had relayed in chapter 3 and in chapter 2. Look at what Peter says in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I want you to notice a few things here. The Holy Spirit empowers Peter, and Peter witnesses to the same truth that he has already witnessed to. That Jesus is the one who was killed by these very leaders has made this man well. That same Jesus that these guys plotted to kill and got killed, that's the same Jesus who made this man walk. What he says here, as he gives testimony in his own trial, is exactly the same as the evangelistic testimony he gave in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 in front of the crowds. If I were to just make a quick comparison, look at what he said um, in chapter 3. Look at verse 12 in chapter 3. He said, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. If you go back to chapter 2 and read Peter's sermon there, he says very much the same thing. You guys killed the Messiah that was given to you. Why is this important? Why is it important that I show you that he preaches the same message that he's been preaching to the, to the crowds that he's now preaching and giving to the, to the rulers of Israel? See, the witness does not change. The message does not change. Whom the message is addressed to changes, but the same message is given to high priest and normal person alike. Notice here that he confronts them with their guilt in the way he confronted the people with their guilt. He tells them that you, you, the builders, rejected the stone that has become the cornerstone. He lays their guilt straight on their shoulders and he offers the very same gospel to them that he offered to the crowds. He makes it clear to them that this is a sign. This sign of a man healed is also a sign for them that they might know that there is no other name by which they, even they, these rulers of Israel, can be saved. Now think with me for a moment here. You would expect that these guys, who were the ones who plotted and rejected Christ, 
that they would have committed the unforgivable sin. Think about it for a second. These are the guys who plotted. These are the guys who decided that Jesus was guilty before Jesus did anything. These are the guys who wanted him dead and were trying to find false witnesses. If you read in Mark and in Luke, it's horrendous, the trial of Jesus Christ, what they were doing. They were trying to kill him regardless of the facts. These are the people who are the instigators. So you would expect that the people who are the instigators, though maybe the crowds can be forgiven, the people who were the instigators cannot be forgiven. Think about this. For example, think about what just recently happened in our country in KZN and Gauteng. Now, you and I might have some sympathy for an old, an old gogo somewhere who went and, and took food that she didn't pay for. But you and I have a serious anger, as we should, to the people who incited the whole thing that caused billions and billions of losses for our countrymen in KZN and in Gauteng in the recent looting spree. We would expect at least that if anybody is going to be imprisoned, if anybody is to be, to, be, to be punished for all the losses and some of the loss of life that happened, it would be the instigators, the ones who planned the whole thing. And we would be right to think so. But here you see the mercy of God, that even the instigators, here, these instigators, who, who committed the worst sin imaginable, the murder of the Son of God, even those instigators are offered the very same gospel. Even those instigators, it is said to them, listen, you guys, there is no name under heaven by which even you can be saved. There is no name. Even you, there is salvation open for you. There is freedom, freedom, forgiveness open to you. But you must tear your clothes Bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will freely offer you forgiveness. How big is your sin? How big is your sin? What have you done? The same blood of Christ that has been washing people's sins for 2,000 years is enough for you. The same blood of Christ, that very same one, there's no special category for you. How big is your sin? What did you do? What did you do last night without the, your friends seeing? What did you do last month? What have you been meditating on that you know you shouldn't? Let me tell you, how, however big your sin is, however big your offense is to God, the same blood of Christ that has washed people for 2,000 years and washed them and made them clean is the same name, the same blood that you should go to. To you, dear Christian, having sinned again and again, even though you know the goodness of God, what do you need? What is it that you need? You who have sinned and offended God, even after he has done marvelous things for you, you've prayed and he's answered, and you've prayed and he's answered you, and he's done grace and grace for you, and yet you still sin, and you still commit sin, and you still fight against him, and you still rebel. What is it that you need? Is there something special perhaps for you? Because clearly, you can't just get the same thing that everybody else gets. Because you know more. You've been given more, and yet you keep spitting in his face. Do you know what you need? You need the same gospel. Even for you, the same gospel, the same name. It's the same Christ. The Christ who died and rose again, and by that one sacrifice, we are forgiven, and we have eternal hope. 
Do not look for another gospel. Do not look for something else. Do not look for another category, another name, something else. Because sure, this particular sin, I mean, this demon doesn't come out by prayer and fasting. So maybe this particular sin needs me to do something. I need to maybe beat myself like the Roman Catholics. Or perhaps I need to, I don't know, donate my fridge to someone. No, you also need that very same gospel. You must believe and you must fight to believe that very same gospel every day. And that is why um, I, I trust Rion as uh, the preacher for you here every Sunday. This is why he is committed to reminding you of that very same gospel. This is why Rian doesn't come here with some new innovations, you know. Hey guys, I was, written, I was reading in the, in the book of mathematics. He <laughs> doesn't come with some calculus theory to save you. He comes back with the same book looking the same, speaking the same, calling out the same name every week until he dies. Same gospel is offered to ruler and peasant alike. Same gospel is offered to horrible sinner, demonic sinner, and even the one who thinks his righteousness is there for him. But unlike these, this same gospel is offered to these rulers, but unlike the people, these men have no ears to hear the gospel. See, we've been hearing the people heard the message and 3,000 were saved and then more, more were saved and every day more were being saved. So people were hearing the message and latching on to it. But look at these rulers in verse 13. They do not latch on to it. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, called the apostles, charged them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. See, here we're told that they were first surprised, astonished at Peter and John's boldness in light of the fact that they were not educated in the law and they were simple men. These were just fishermen from Galilee. And these, you know, Galileans were common people. They were like people in the bundus, people in the villages, you know, people in the, in the corners, in the rural and small towns. They were not people from the sophisticated Jerusalem. The clarity which, which they spoke, the biblical precision which they had, confounded the rulers. This was coupled with the recognition that these men were with Jesus. And this same court had had serious difficulties catching Jesus just a few days ago, a few months ago. They had serious difficulties catching Jesus out in doctrinal debate because he had confounded them over and over again. And seeing the healed man beside them as a witness, they were unable to bring any charge against them, and they were unable to argue with them. And what Luke means by this is this. They had nothing of substance to say. You see when Luke says they're seeing that they had nothing to say in opposition at the end of verse 14. He basically means they had nothing of substance to say in retort. 
They could threaten them. They could, they could say stuff, but they can't really say anything worth stuff of substance. So all that they'll do is just threaten them, berate them in, this, in, a, in a moment. But because they are clearly committing, these, these men, this, this council of leaders, because they are clearly committed to something other than the truth, they do not believe. They are committed to their own power, to keeping the status quo in Israel. They want to continue being the rulers of Israel. They do not want to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, which would mean a disbandment of their council. Because their council is no longer necessary, it's the church now. But they want to keep the power, they want to keep things going as they are, so they don't care what the truth is. They are committed to their own power, and so the truth is not important. I want you to think with me for, some, for a moment. This is not some normal court case here, where we just have to determine whether Peter and John are guilty or not, and it ends there. The testimony that Peter has given, and the visible sign of this man who is standing here healed, suggests that the rulers of the people have an obligation to listen to what God is saying. It's not just a matter of we let you go or not. It's rather this, that if you are right, then we must believe. It's either Peter is guilty of witchcraft or God has spoken. There's no middle ground. Now, here's the thing. In the face of all the proof, all the proof that, they, that was in front of them, they do not respond in faith. Is it possible that you're here this afternoon not convinced of Christianity because you say you need more proof. But perhaps the proof that you need is staring you dead in the face. Is it possible, like these men, that the actual reason you are not trusting in Jesus is not lack of proof, but rather you have other commitments? You have other things that you care about. You want to you wanna live your life. You want to continue living your life. You want to continue indulging in sin. That's why you're not believing in Jesus. It has nothing to do with proof. It has nothing to do with some kind of tangible evidence that will make you really believe. No. It's, it's being committed to the things that you know. These men, do not, these men do not want to bow down to Christ because they don't want a complete change of everything. Is it possible that you're not believing in Christ because you're committed to living a particular lifestyle? Perhaps it is obvious to you that you need to come and get right with God. There is a nagging, persistent sense that you will not find rest until you come to God and have your sins clean, cleansed. But here you are, not believing, not trusting in Him, you're busy having unnecessary arguments. My question to you is why? Why would you deny reality? Don't these men look foolish to you? These men are foolish. That they, that they, 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 will, they will perpetuate such a thing. It, it, looks, it looks foolish. There's, there's enough proof in front of them, but they don't want to come and believe. So let me encourage you with the same. Stop trying to deny reality. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But the example of these men has another lesson for us. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, lists seven things that God absolutely hates. If you want to know what God hates, what is it that God really despises? Like if there's something that God really finds detestable. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19 is a good place to go. And he, one, of the, one of the things that God hates, nestled in there, verses 16 to 19, is a false witness who breathes out lies. 
Let me encourage you, dear saints, listen to me. In disagreements, especially when it comes to conversations about other people, it is a horrendous sin to perpetuate a narrative about someone that is clearly against the facts. It is a sin. We must be truthful witnesses and not false ones. These men here are not interested in exactly what the truth of God is. Rather, they're committed to their own agenda. Dear beloved of God, let me encourage you to stay away from having such a, a satanic approach to life. Be a truth seeker, not someone who pushes forward lies in order to keep up a particular narrative. You're with me? Because that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're trying to persist and they're, they're threatening them. They don't want to just accept the clear truth that's in front of them. But not only do they not believe, but they decide to tell the apostles to not preach. You see this in verse 18. They tell the apostles, don't preach. This is the foolishness of coming before God with an agenda. Now they don't want God to do what God does. They don't want more miracles. They don't want more people to be saved. They want to shut the whole thing down because they're committed to their own agenda. It's shocking, but it's the same thing that these very same people did in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew tells us in Matthew 28 that after Christ rose from the dead, the gods who saw it happen went to the priests to tell them what happened. They, they went to the priests and said, listen, man, we were there. We were really, you know, we're Romans, so we have to guard. And we were standing there across the tomb and then all of a sudden we were thrown aside the tomb rolled, the stone rolled over, and the guy just woke. The guy just woke up and he started walking. They told them this. And you would expect in Israel that the priests of Israel would, would be like, what in the world? This is a great miracle. This is, the, this is a miracle greater than the parting of the Red Sea. You would expect them to tear their clothes and run to see this for themselves. But no. What did they do? Do you remember the story, Matthew 28? They told the gods, hey, here's some money. Don't tell people that that's what happened. Rather, tell the people that the disciples came at night, overpowered you, and then they took his body away. See the foolishness of this? It's, 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 it's stupid, really. It's dumb. God is doing something clearly in front of your eyes, and you're denying it. Dear saints, uh, we, we need to be aware of evil. Uh, Luke is telling us this. Because the Old Testament told us that the nations will rage against the Messiah. The nations will not receive his rule without a fight. The nations want to rule themselves and Christ will overcome them. And so we must know as we go out as witnesses to Christ's mercy, we must be ready for serious mind-numbing pushback from lost men. Nothing strange is happening when people do evil things to you or say evil things about you because you are preaching Christ. You should expect it. Just like they did not spare our master, surely they will not spare us. But in the face of opposition, our task remains steadfast. Our example are the apostles. Look at how these men respond. In verse, from verse 19, look at how these men respond. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, or rather to, sorry, 
Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, then they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all the people in Jerusalem were praising God for what had happened. And this was a great sign because the man whom the sign was done was more than 40 years old. Meaning that for 40 years people had seen this guy, well at least for a a large part of 40 years, people had seen this guy sitting at the temple begging for alms. He was a known man and here he is now walking. So Peter and John ask these men a question in response to which they do not respond to. Should we listen to you or to God? Should we, should we listen to you or to, should we listen to God? And, you know, if these men were really believing that they're still following the Lord, they would have been like, no, 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 you guys are confused. God did not say this. But look, they don't respond. They don't say anything in response to Peter and John's question. They just threaten them because they've got nothing to say. Only Peter and John have the evidence on their side. They can't produce a reason as to why they can't preach. They just don't want them to preach. Our resolve must be steadfast to continue in what God calls us to, regardless of the opposition to our message. Dear Heritage Baptist, you must resolve to do what God says, just like these men did. You must resolve that you will not change the gospel to make anybody happy. You with me? You, dear church, have a responsibility to never tolerate anyone in this pulpit who refuses to preach apostolic doctrine. It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility as a church to make sure that the people who stand in front of you to preach the gospel, preach the true one. And if they start not preaching the true gospel, you kick them out while they're talking. It's your job. It's not Rian's job, it's yours. As a church, you must not bow down to people who want to tell you that your gospel is outdated, that your message needs to be amended, and that Jesus is not king. All of that is nonsense. You must stand when it comes to Christ. Your resolve in the face of those who oppose the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ must ever be steadfast. One of the reasons, let me just uh, tell you this, one one of the reasons why... I decided to preach through the book of Acts and Heritage in Joburg uh, this year and for the next few years, was that after a a year like 2020, uh, we need, I perceived that our church needed a fresh injection of clarity as to what it is that we must be committed to as a church. A fresh injection of clarity. See, there are many commitments right now. After 2020, there are thousands of commitments that everybody's telling you, vying for your attention, telling you, be committed to this. Don't move on this. Don't barge on this. Be steadfast on this. Every day, you're being bombarded by all kinds of people on the internet and your friends and wherever, telling you that this is what you must know. This is the thing you must fight against. But the apostles show us here that our commitment to Christ And his gospel is what we will not budge from. Our commitment to Christ and his gospel is what we will not budge from. Dear church, we we will be teachable on many things. I hope you you believe that. That you you can be teachable and you can be amendable in many things. 
Okay? If your family wants coleslaw instead of, I don't know, the potato salad, it's fine. No one's gonna die. <laughs> okay, just like, just, uh, okay, fine, let's have coleslaw. Or if, you, if, you're, if your family, I don't know, people like to eat, I don't know what they like to eat. You know, maybe you don't like a fed cook, you want a cook sister. And then here's a people that want fed cooks, it's fine. Let them have the, it, there's no need to, to die on that hill. Okay? But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it comes to the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, forever rule of the man Christ Jesus of Nazareth, you must be unteachable. You must be unbendable. No one can tell you nothing because this is the gospel that has been once and for all been given to the saints and it is our heritage that we will take if the Lord tarries, we will take into the next generation. Stand on this gospel and be amenable to many other things. It's fine. To let us bend on other things. It doesn't matter. But on this thing, can't bend. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we ask that by your mercy and grace, you would help us to have the same resolve as these men. To be clear on the gospel as to what it is and to be immovable on it. To preach it because you have given it to us. Because we recognize that it is not our message, it is your message. That it is not our power, it is your power that saves men. And so we will deliver that message to any man or woman or child in front of us as it is, come what may. Oh Lord, we, I pray for this church that you'd give them the boldness that they need to carry this out, even in the face of opposition. With friends, family, colleagues, etc., as they face opposition of various kinds and at different levels, that Lord, that you would help them to stand as it pertains to gospel issues. Give your church strength, Lord. Give these people the same resolve that the apostles had to stand in the face of opposition. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.